November is Men's Health Awareness Month. This month, whatever you grow will save a bro. Movember is all about starting conversations, raising awareness, funds, and saving lives. If you're looking to donate, friends of the show Grant O'Gorman or William Hoey are off to a great start and could use our help. Check out the show notes or visit movember.com to search for and donate to their pages today. And now on to the show. Stay excellent, friends. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Super excited for today's guest, one of the best liberos in the world, so hopefully we can nerd out on some technical, tactical stuff. So today's guest is the youngest player to ever earn a AAA CBVA beach rating. She's a two-time, or excuse me, she's represented the USA two times at the Youth World Championships with Sarah Hughes, both times taking a top 10 result. She's an NCAA champion with Nebraska. She was also Athlete of the Year at Nebraska. She's been named to the All-Tournament team in the NCAA. She's a two-time All-American. And with the U.S. national team, she's won gold at Nations League, Pan Am Cup, a silver at the World Cup, a silver at the Norsega Continental Championship. She's currently playing pro in Germany. Please welcome to the show, Justine Wong-Orantes. Justine, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Josh, for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I got to start with a, a good shout-out to friend of the show, Justin, for giving you the, the, the pass here. So we just had him on the show, and he said you'd be great. So thanks for making the time to join us. Yeah, 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 yeah. Justin and I are basically family. So when he reached out to me, it was it was perfect. And I was like, yeah, I'm happy to do it. Perfect. So he had a pretty young start in volleyball. I'm interested in yours and, and trying to do some research for the show. Confirm or deny, were you six years old when you started playing club volleyball? Yes. Around there is when I started to uh, uh, start to play club volleyball with Mizuno Long Beach because my dad actually was coaching there at the time and so I would just follow him along with um, his practices and then I just got really intrigued by the sport both my parents played and so that's how I was exposed to the sport and then throughout you know the years I just became um, like in love with the sport of volleyball and I, I grew to love it even more. Wow. Wow. So when you say you're six, how old were your teammates? Was this like a U12 team or U10? Like how how much behind were the other athletes were you? Yeah, um, they were probably around the same age, like six to eight years old, because at that time, the club I played for didn't have a U10, or I know some of them even have like U10 and what now they call like a a beach academy. And so I played U12 for four years, actually, (laughs) because I was so young that I kept having to play 12s. And a lot of my teammates were the same um, age as me. And so we just kept going, you know, on the same team uh, under 12s for a good couple of years. Awesome. Awesome. And were you playing any other sports at the time or were you mostly doing like indoor during that season and then you would switch over to beach? Yeah, I I played soccer um, up until 13, 14 years old around the middle school age. And so um, I was going back and forth between volleyball and soccer. But when I became around eighth grade, ninth grade is when I fully committed to volleyball because I knew that was I was more passionate about it. And that's what where I wanted to go, you know, to college for and try to pursue that. Now, most of our listeners, I would say in Canada and myself as well. So when I, I learned about this, this AAA thing that you need to earn through the CBVA, can you just let us know? Because I'm sure the California listeners are rolling their eyes right now. But can you just let us know how the, how the beach system works and, and how big of an accomplishment that was for you and Summer Ross to earn this at such a young age? Yeah. Um, so every summer I would uh, you know go to beach volleyball and I would play with all 
all of my friends, including Summer Ross, Sarah Hughes, and we always signed up. We had to have a CBBA membership, and so that was paid yearly, and and then you would just get to sign up for all these different tournaments throughout the summer, and some were just youth 12 and under, 14, 16, 18 and under, but then some were also rated tournaments, so you can go from having your uh, single A to the double A, triple A, and so we, as we got older and kind of more serious about volleyball is when we started to go into those rated tournaments just to see, you know, how we would level up against, um, I mean, there were adults that were playing in those tournaments. And so we wanted to see how we could do and if we could hang with them. And so um, I played quite a few tournaments with Summer Ross and then obviously with Sarah uh, because she was my, my go-to beach partner. But it was just so fun to like really, really just make yourself better and trying to play against these adults and they would often get frustrated because they're playing against you know 12 14 year olds and um, they're getting beat by them but it was just so much fun because we were out there having a blast and just competing awesome awesome and when you and sarah qualified to represent the u.s at youth world championships just again as a canadian let us know how your system works did you have to win a tournament to qualify do you get nominated like how's the u.s system as far as getting the chance to represent your country at a youth world championship yeah um so we we have the usa high performance program that um is also the beach and the indoor um programs and so i when I was younger, I did the US, uh, the beach side. And so um, we would play in local tournaments that would qualify us for the the bigger international tournaments. And Sarah and I were uh, pretty set partners. So we accumulated a lot of points together. And so that would end up qualifying us for the international tournament. So we had the opportunity to go to Cyprus, Greece, and um, Croatia, those two tournaments. And they were an absolute blast and such cool experiences. Yeah, you mentioned at a young age that you wanted to play university and you kind of knew what that was, even though you started club volleyball so young. So I'm just curious, when you got to that first world championship, what were some of your first impressions about like how big volleyball could be or what it was like representing your country? Like, was there any like wow moments early on when you got there? For both Sarah and I, we always traveled alone. We we had each other, but our parents unfortunately weren't able to make those tournaments. So we really had to experience it fully by ourselves and just how big of an atmosphere and you know we're competing on an international stage now and so I think the more and more we realized that we really wanted it to become a an end goal and really represent whether it was indoor or outdoor but I, th- I think both me and Sarah had had those dreams of representing our country hopefully in the Olympics. Awesome. Awesome. Now I'm curious just to switch back to indoor. You mentioned like the, the goal was to eventually play in university. So with your recruiting process, do you remember how young you were when you started either looking at schools or coaches started approaching you and saying that like you could be a D1 athlete? Like what was that process like in your uh, career as far as like playing high school and club? Yeah, yeah. So back in my club days, I was a setter up until my senior year of high school. And so I was getting looked at from some smaller D1 schools in California locally. And so they were recruiting me as a setter um, or maybe a defensive specialist uh, just because of my size. And and so that's when I realized that, okay, maybe if I really, like I had very high dreams to go to a top D1 school. And so I 
it came to me um, around my junior year that I said I probably have to transition into the libero position if I wanted to go. My dream back then was to go to Stanford. And so I really, really wanted to achieve that dream. So I knew that I would have to make that switch. And so that's when I did my junior year and my my club coaches were all for it and they supported me and tried to make me as equipped as I could be going into college. And so my my senior year was when I fully, fully committed uh, to the libero position in that role and uh, try to absorb any information. And I was in the gym nonstop because I knew that I had a lot of catching up to do. Um, and so I tried to work my butt off as, as hard as I could and get as many reps as I could. And then eventually um, was so, so lucky to get a scholarship to Nebraska. Do you remember what that experience was like? Because you mentioned like you're working your tail off, you're getting all these reps, but the the tactical side of the game almost flips, right? Where you're kind of like the quarterback of the team and now you're leading the defense and taking control of that side, right? So other than the reps, was there anything that stood out to you as far as just your understanding of the game and what each role kind of demanded a little bit different than the other? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's actually pretty funny and just like crazy to think about because even to this day like I have a little bit of difficulties just having that mindset of a libero compared to when I had you know the mindset of a setter is like sometimes when I'm playing the libero position I'm not really involved in the game maybe they're not serving me as much and so I really had to learn over these years to try to contribute in some way with it maybe being my vo- voice and communicating to the to my other teammates um, as much as I can and try to help them out as, as best as I can. And so I think that kind of switch of the mindset has been something that I've been trying to really, you know, nail even to this day and with the national team and professionally. Awesome. Awesome. And what was your recruiting like as far as choosing to leave California? Because I'm curious... Is it common for California athletes to go that far east and land? Like, don't get me wrong, Nebraska is a great school and a great volleyball program, but I think anyone who doesn't live in California, myself included, like, I would love to go to California, and you made the choice to leave it, right? So so what went into that decision? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I I was pretty shocked myself, too, because I – had no idea what schools were out outside of California and just anything beyond California was like so foreign to me. When I got to Nebraska, I was like, there's no ocean here. Like there's <laughs> nothing. And so, but when I like, and this is, I know probably sounding so cliche, but when I got to the, to the campus of Nebraska, like I instantly fell in love um, the facilities like blew me away. The when I watched the match in the former arena, the Coliseum, it was completely sold out. The just the fan base and overall support for Nebraska volleyball and athletics in general was over the moon. I mean, they were so supported in every way possible, even including academics. And so I think in every aspect that Nebraska had to offer, it was just such a no brainer for me to um, accept the scholarship. Yeah, we just had Sarah Pavin on the show, who's a Canadian, but she went to Nebraska and obviously won a national championship there. And she said it was just amazing to be at a school where obviously football is number one at a lot of schools, but to have volleyball be number two was really special. So I'm curious when you get to campus, 
How are you handling the expectations of what uh, Coach Cook had already built there and how passionate they are about volleyball? Like, did you feel pressure to perform there or were you honestly just happy to be in an environment that was so volleyball crazy? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a little bit of both for sure. I think the main reason why I was feeling so much pressure was that I felt like I had no time to really step into this role because going into my freshman year, Coach Cook had already um, expressed to me that I was probably had a good chance of starting my freshman year and he was really trying to give me confidence that I could do it. But for me, just growing up as a setter and playing that my whole life, I was like, can I, I was having all these doubts, like if I could do it or not. And so getting there, um, I really, I mean, continued with the extra reps and try as best as I could to really try to prepare myself, but there's no really any sort of preparation that can come with playing your first match in the Big Ten and just filled with 8,000 fans in um, the Nebraska arena. There was just no sort of preparation that can really, you know, come from that. So it was just really um, leaning on my teammates and my coaching staff to really try to find that, you know, that calmness, that confidence. Um, and then throughout the season, it definitely got better. We had a huge help from uh, my current USA national teammate, Kelsey Robinson, that was a senior my freshman year at Nebraska. And so she was a huge help just for, you know, my confidence and just being a great teammate. And it was it was amazing to play with her. And I'm so happy to play with her. That's that's awesome. Yeah. Can we pull on that for a second? Because I'm always curious when people say someone's a great teammate or a great leader. I think a lot of people's mind go to like the Disney style speech or like some big moments like that. But what are some things that stand out in your mind that when you were on the, the younger side that leaders did for you? And then obviously when that role flipped, you were a leader. Like what are some little things that maybe some of our young listeners could listen and be like, that's being a good teammate. That's being consistent. Like what are some things that stand out that helped you and things that you try to do in your game now for others? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that Kelsey did for me is just making me feel calm out there. I know I was a scared little freshman at times, and if things weren't going my way, she was the first person to, you know, look me in the eyes and just hold my hand and tell me, like, hey, you can do this, and just really have that belief in myself that I could do it, and that it just meant so much more to me that she knew that I could do it. And she still does that, does that to this day with anyone that comes into the national team gym. And I really applaud her for that because I think as a teammate, if you can be, if you can elevate anyone around you, their game, it's going to make you that much more of a great teammate. And it just makes everyone feel at ease on the court. Yeah, thanks for that. It's great to hear what the leadership's doing inside the room. I'm curious, what can you tell us about your experience with Coach Cook and and what he's been able to do to just be successful everywhere he's been and to keep that program in top shape where it seems like every year the expectations are a national championship. So what are, what are some behind the scenes or little things that stand out when you hear John Cook's name? <laughs> yeah, he definitely has his little... His little phrases and sayings that if anyone that I played with, I say it, they know exactly who I'm talking about. And he, I mean, like you said, he has this reputation of always having an incredible top team. And I think it just comes with, you know, the preparation and just 
the the hard work that comes into into the team and the staff. I mean, everyone in the staff is working their butts off from the coaching staff to our nutritionist to our sports psych. Like everyone has a role in um in the program and I I think everyone sees that and trusts that. And so um he really I think even up until this point with all the advancements in, you know, mental health and our technology, he's really utilizing those resources and it helps the the players and the athletes tremendously. And so I think he's grown to, to realize that and use that. And I just think he, oh my gosh, he just breathes volleyball and you can tell like he is always randomly, you'll just, he'll be like, remember that one game, that one point? And I'm like, how do you remember that? That was like two years ago. But that's just that's just Coach Cook in a nutshell. And I cannot thank him enough for my time at Nebraska and just the confidence and belief that he had in me was, you know, it's made me who I am today. Now to, to focus in and really magnify one season, I'm curious, a volleyball crazy place like Nebraska – you guys are deemed the host of the tournament. And I think this is declared before the season starts, right? And that was the year you guys took it down, right? When you're hosting? Yes, yes. So what were the what was the preseason like? Because you've mentioned it and Sarah mentioned as well that John was kind of leading on the mental stuff before it was even a big thing in sport, that he was all about, you know, confidence and growth mindset and making people feel like comfortable. So when it's announced and you're at a school like Nebraska, does the attention switch right away to we're going to win a national championship? Or what was kind of the process going through that season? I mean, when we, yeah, I think we found out, I think it was in January of that year that um, the Final Four was going to be held in Omaha. And I mean, there was just a unspeakable kind of pressure that was held on us just because I think the last time that it was in Omaha in 2006, they had made it to the Final Four and won that year. And so we also felt that pressure that, okay, we need to make it there. And so we did all these all these mantras to help us make, uh, keep us reminded that, okay, this is our end goal. We, um, had a sports site that we met with every, every week or so to, to visualize that and have that mindset. And just every, I think he, he really wanted to have every aspect just checked off and making sure that we could do everything in our power to, to get there. And I think, everyone on the team was bought in and I think that was crucial for that year because we needed every single person on that team to be to be on the same page and so I think ultimately that's what that's what got us there is because everyone was completely locked in the entire season and then and of course we had I remember during that season we actually lost back-to-back home games against Minnesota and Wisconsin and it was like oh my gosh what is happening. But, um, at the end of the day, like we bounced back from it. And I think it was probably a good thing that we had two losses to really have that feeling set in and say, okay, this is not what we want to feel again. And how can we respond to this? And it, it made us better in the end for sure. Now, if it's not too personal, would you mind just sharing what the debrief was of that weekend? Because the Big Ten is crazy and there's so many good teams, but a a pessimist fan might be saying, how are we going to be in the Final Four if we can't even win our own conference? Like, so what was the the message in the team room after that weekend where it's kind of like, okay, we we got knocked around a little bit, but we're going to bounce back and we're still committed to our goals? Right, right. Yeah, I remember sitting in the locker room 
I want to say it was about an hour after the match, like just dissecting everything. I remember Coach Cook putting the stats up for um, every category on the whiteboard, and we just were we we did not meet any of our goals that we had set in the beginning of the season of of hitting percentage, uh, blocking defense percentages, anything. We were just under um, all of those all of those goals and percentages, and. I remember also breaking down film and seeing what what went wrong. And so it was just really, I think, talking about it. And our captain, Kelly Hunter, really, I just remember her saying like, okay, this is not what we want to feel again. And we all kind of let it sink in for a bit. And then the next weekend we came back firing and we won. I want to say... Who did we play? I want to say we played Ohio State, which is also a very good team in the Big Ten. And we won um, away. And so it was a good, definitely a good response to that back-to-back weekend loss. And um, I think everyone just kind of came into that weekend very hungry and wanting to prove that, okay, this is not, you know, going to happen again. Now, obviously, that you've accomplished a lot in your career, so this might be a little bit too long, but I'm wondering if you remember a, a mantra that you guys had, because it's interesting to hear about the stats and video breakdown and how you stayed connected that way. I'm just curious, did some of those mantras help when it's like, I don't know, a Tuesday practice in November and you're getting your extra reps in that you're you're still staying connected to this goal, even though it might seem far away and you're just kind of doing your routine, right? Yes, yes. That year, we had a mantra saying, why not us? Um, and I think a lot of it just went into, you know, we have this very talented team and we have so many resources and so many things that can help us get to that end goal of being in the final four that um, our captain Kelly Hunter had came up with that mantra and said, why not us? Like we, why not, why not this time? Why not this year? We have all the, you know, capabilities of doing so. And it's just a matter of putting in that work and really trying to be consistent about it. Nice, nice. And as the tournament starts, how did you personally like to like ride the wave of going through that? Like you, you obviously have the goal of being in the final four and winning a national championship, but do you remember what the first round feel like when you were winning games? Was it just confirming for your goal or was every game kind of a, a roller coaster? Like how did you get through the process? Because the tournament can be pretty grinding and obviously you might be playing a team you're familiar with, not familiar with. Like how was that journey as a whole for you? It was really hard to, you know, look at the bracket and see, okay, maybe we'll, we'll match up with this team and then the next round this team. But we really, really try to stay in the present and just focus on one match at a time. I think we played Harvard that first round and we actually lost a set to them. Um, and we were like freaking out for a bit. But I mean, they played well. They were a good team. Um, but it was just, okay, like how can we be in the present again and just focus on one game at a time and not looking too much into the future because I think obviously everyone knew that, okay, we should be beating these teams in the first and second round, but we have to take it one match at a time or else it's going to slip away. And so um, that kind of reminded us to bring us in the into the present moment and just focus on the task at hand. 
Now, I'm really curious because looking this up, it looked like you guys played Texas in the final. And obviously your era would have been in the Big Ten and they wouldn't be considered like a main rival. But uh, Sarah Pavin mentioned that was the, the uh, excuse me, the Nebraska rival when she was there. So what was the outside noise like? Like you're hosting the championship game. It's against your old rival. Like how did the team kind of not get absorbed with what uh, maybe the booster club or the fan base was thinking about? Ooh, we're playing Texas at home for a national championship. Like this is going to be big versus what were you guys yeah. thinking? in your own room yeah yeah so um i don't know even actually to this day there is some unspoken rivalry that is with nebraska and texas i think maybe you know just being two pretty big powerhouse programs i think that just comes with it but we definitely and we always played them in the preseason too and we beat them in oh wait no, I take that back. We actually lost to them in the preseason that that 2015 year. And um, so there was some sort of revenge that was out there. And so, of course, it being at home in Nebraska, it helped a, a lot. Um, I mean, I remember walking to into the arena the first time and just seeing red everywhere. And so that kind of made us feel a little bit more comfortable, just knowing that all these fans were for us and rooting for us. And so... Um, we just, you know, we had to take it one game at a time because I know there's, I know I was feeling nervous at times. I'm sure a lot of my teammates were feeling nervous just with that big stage. Um, but I think we did a really good job of managing those nerves. Amazing. Yeah. Thanks for all the details you've shared there. So I'm curious, you're, you're winning player of the year. You're winning an NCAA championship. You're on the all tournament team. You're an all American when did the the goal come that you could play for the U.S.? Was this something you decided in high school and club, or did did university really confirm it for you? Like, when did you start drawing attention to man, I could play at the next level? Yeah, I think um, once I started getting more comfortable in the libero position, I want to say it didn't really hit me until my junior year of of college is when I fully accepted my role and just kind of owning that space and that role. I was getting more comfortable. I was really just, just, I, like I said, owning it and just really, um, all my teammates kind of looked up to me in, in, in that aspect. And so, um, I think that's when I kind of had that confidence, like, okay, I can do this. A lot of my teammates know that I can do this. And so, um, my junior and senior year, I, we had a very good team and we, we had a lot of good accomplishments. And so um, I think that also kind of exposed me to maybe Karch and the national team. And going into my senior year, that summer going into my senior year is when I initially got invited to the national team for the Pan Am Cup. Um, since it was the same year as the Olympics, um, they took a lot of younger players that were still in college or maybe recently graduated college. So I now, now I was playing with some current teammates like Micah Hancock, Megan Courtney, Maddie Kingdon. Um, so we were all in that 2016 Pan Am Cup uh, tournament. And so that was my first ever USA indoor kind of de- debut with the women's national team. 
I might be putting you on the spot with this one, but I'm just curious. You're you're battling with these people across the net. Maybe there's some Big Ten rivals there, and now you're on the same U.S. team. Like, the first time do you meet uh, Mike Hancock, are you like, ooh, I hate Penn State and I hate you? Or does it turn out, do you think like, oh, she's actually way nicer than I thought, and I'm glad I'm on her team. Like, what were those conversations like? Because you mentioned it's a younger team, and you've battled with these players for so long. So uh, how long did it take for everybody to warm up to each other? Yeah, yeah. I mean... It was definitely like, oh, I hate playing against you, but okay, we're on the same team now, and I love my guy. Like, I love all of them, but it was just so fun to finally be on the same side of the net as them and really see what we could all do together, and it was so fun to have that, you know, that first experience together, and then now, you know, a couple years later when we're all out of college and we're together again on the national team. And how does Karch like to run that program? Because you mentioned it's during an Olympic cycle, so I'm sure his focus is with the the A squad. But how how much did you get to interact with him, or what were some of the coaches you got to work with with your first chance on Team USA? Yeah, they were there. Um, they practiced a couple courts down from us, so we would see them um, during water breaks and see them practice a little bit. Um, but at one point, because that training block that we were in was about three weeks or so. And so they were coming in and out of tournaments. Um, I think it, it used to be called the World Grand Prix Tournament. And so they they kind of rotated players in and out. So we had we saw Kayla Banworth. I think at that time she was recovering from a concussion. And so she was um, still at home. And so we got to interact with her, um, with Karch a little bit. But it was mainly just like the the B squad and some of those girls that were practicing that were at home. And you already had international experience with beach, but does indoor compare? Like, was there anything you could take from that experience or even your NCAA experience of playing at a big stage or the, the first time you got to represent the U.S. with indoor volleyball? Was that just a, a new experience and everything was different? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Just because it was, for one, I think because I was in a totally different position and just having that that space new to me and seeing if I could actually do it on this, you know, the highest platform that you could be on with the USA team. And so that was a little nerve wracking coming into the gym at first, but, you know, it was super fun to have all of these players that I've played against and they're not that much older than me. So we really, you know, related to each other and had this common ground. And so that tournament was super fun and seeing what we could do. Awesome. Awesome. And I was hoping you could share a few secrets of the USA gym because in Canada here, we're just over the moon to have Tom Black and everything he's brought. So I'm wondering with his experience with Team USA, what are some secrets? And the big buzzword that I think Karch uses and Tom's a big believer in is this this growth mindset. So you mentioned you weren't afraid to get extra reps and really focus in on the libero position. But how how has the growth mindset maybe helped your game as far as like, okay, today was ugly, but tomorrow's going to be a little bit better. And in two weeks, I'm going to be really good at this. Like how how have you dialed in this or how have coaches or, or maybe some vets on the team really helped you show that, you know, things are going to be hard because we want to get better. And this is really the only way to do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Karch has this phrase, it's USA good. And so I think for me, it, it took a long time to kind of realize what that meant. And he just says that, you know, especially at being at the highest stage and platform of the volleyball world 
the speed and just the game is a lot faster than any other, you know, college, club, whatever it may be. And so I think just he says a lot of times is if we can be good over a long period of time, we are going to be, you know, very successful instead of having these ups and downs of, okay, we're really, really perfect or you know you go down into this slump of maybe bad and so we can kind of even that out to just being good we don't have to be spectacular but just being good I think that really kind of hit home with me because I think especially those first years um in the national team gym I'm adjusting to a whole different ball game I mean the speed was so fast I was like it was I was getting the setters were just throwing me for a loop and I felt like I was like a chicken with its head cut off. Like I had no idea what was going on. And so it definitely took me some time to adjust to the speed and just get the system down. But um, yeah, I love what Kurt says about, you know, that USA good and just being consistent. And with the, the rosters you've been named to, I'm curious, with so many good athletes there at your full-time training center in Anaheim, how are rosters selected? Like when you get a chance to go to World Cup or you make the, the Nations League roster, what are those feelings like? Do you always feel like you're in a tryout or do you have a sense that a roster announcement's coming? Like what is the process for the athletes there? Because you guys are training with so many talented athletes all the time. How do you know that you're in the hunt for these these big competitions that are seem to always be coming up? I think it definitely... At some points, especially when you're maybe not having a great day, it can kind of feel like a trial and, oh, am I worried that, you know, I'm going to get my spot taken or I'm going to get cut or something. But I think, you know, just realizing that everyone's going to have a bad day, even if we are on the national team, it's just, you know, natural, we're human, that we're going to have a bad day. And I think even talking about that with the veteran players has made me, you know, calm and relax a little bit. Like, okay, like you can have a bad day, but maybe let's try to respond from that the next day and try to make it a little bit better. But as far as the, um, the roster selection, um, he usually breaks it down into a training block and depending on which tournament you are trying to make that roster for it, it separates into those two training blocks. And so sometimes when we have, like, for instance, last summer, we had quite a few tournaments. And so there were different training blocks with two different uh, coaching staffs. And so Rob Browning, who is the head coach of St. Mary's in uh, California, he was with us for the Pan Am Cup training block. And along with Lori Corbelli and Taiba Hanif. And so it was very cool to just see, you know, a different perspective of, of coaching and see what they had to offer. And it was also nice because Karch and his staff was checking in and saying, okay, are we still following system and things like that? But yeah, it usually breaks down to the training blocks and then you have about three weeks to train and then maybe that last week or so, he's uh, making that roster selection. And can you give us a a Karch story? I'm just curious because he's this larger than life personality. Obviously, if he's not the best player of all time, he's definitely in the conversation. But you get into these YouTube wormholes and you just hear him talk. And it seems like the guy never has a bad day. He always wants to compete. Even Courtney Thompson's told stories where like he'll jump into a drill and he'll start chirping you and little uh-huh. things like that. Right. So what what is yeah. that environment like where, yeah, he's the head coach, but there he, he's there to have fun. He's there to push you like there's going to be situations where different things are going to come up. But he just seems like he's always 
you know, in that mood to make everybody better and to compete. Yeah. When, when I first met Karch, I was thinking how, like, I didn't know it was possible to have someone uh, love volleyball more than Coach Cook did. And I was like blown away about how Karch just lives and breathes volleyball. I mean, I think he has had two hip replacements and still is able to jump in the drills and full on jump and play back row volleyball with us and he's diving all over the place and it just makes me a little bit worried for him but (laughs) you know he's obviously such a great player such a great coach and he just cannot step away from the game of volleyball and I think it's awesome great great to hear so this might circle back a little bit but I'm always curious the few pro players we've had on the show that are liberos they've mentioned it can be pretty hard as a foreigner to get a professional deal so I'm curious with you being an NCAA champion, you're a USA athlete. What point in your career did you start looking overseas that you wanted to play? And then how was it finding an agent and finding contracts at your position? Because uh, I think there's some European coaches that just believe, oh, we can take an older outside and they can just go pass for us. We don't need to burn the foreigner card on, you know, a USA athlete or Canadian athlete, right? Uh, as a libero. So what's your experience yeah. like being a pro player overseas? Yeah, I found it pretty difficult to find certain contracts um or just a contract in general because yeah like you said it's it's difficult for a libero to to find anything really um especially in a in a league that really is going to challenge you too so for me i after i was getting closer to the end of uh, my senior year is when i was starting to think about okay i definitely want to continue to play um and that means i'm gonna have to look at playing overseas um I don't this is probably my one regret um it's just not researching enough and not asking enough questions in terms of agents or agencies to really talk to because uh after I was done with college I had no one that I had signed with in terms of agencies and so I was kind of just thrown in and trying to ask my assistant coach Tama on the national team for any info and any contacts that she had and so at that point it's in the summer and a lot of people are signing probably I want to say April May in the springtime and I'm just now asking my coach maybe in June, July, if I could have any contacts from her, what she knows about the overseas life. And so at that time, I was pretty late. And so that's probably one thing that I regret in my career, just not, you know, getting a a head start on things and asking more questions because I actually lost out on on um, that year going overseas. And so I ended up training at home for the 2017-18 season. Um, I I trained in Anaheim with Karch. And so, and I did also the same year, I think that also backfired on me not being able to go overseas and kind of getting that exposure to professional life. And they had no, I, I had some video from USA, but nothing overseas. So no one really knew of my name out there in Europe. And so for the the next season, 2018, um, I actually didn't go overseas again, but I had a, I had an agent at that time. And so I was really trying to get a head start. Okay, what can I do now to really, you know, get my name out there, get as much video out there. And so Fortunately, I did get a a contract this past season, uh, 2019, 
2020 in Germany. And so last year was my first season abroad. And then this season, it kind of set me up. Okay, now that I, I had one season in Germany, people got, uh, teams got to see me. And so I think that was very, very lucky. And, and I benefited from that because then I got this job in Germany. Um, and so I'm here in Germany for my second season. Great. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your your process through all of this, because I think as, as North Americans, it's a little up in the air for us because we know what pro volleyball is, but it, we don't get to see it every day. We don't know club teams as well as maybe some European athletes. So it's interesting to hear everybody get started. So with us being you know a lighthearted volleyball podcast, we don't need to dive into the COVID thing that's affecting everybody. But I'm curious, with that aside, how has this season been for you? Like, how do you find the level in Germany? How's the, the lifestyle in general about, you know, being around teammates, English speakers, non-English speakers? Like, how are you enjoying your season so far? Yeah, I absolutely love my city. It is 30 minutes away from Frankfurt. So my travel day coming here from, I flew out of LAX directly to Frankfurt. So that was an awesome travel day, probably the easiest travel day I've had. <laughs> and so then I came here. And I love my team. I mean, everyone, uh, we have three Americans total on the team, including myself. And then the rest is kind of mixed around with different European um, nationals. And so we get along great. I mean, the city is awesome. It kind of reminds me of like a San Francisco, New York style um, with the buildings, the tall buildings and just it's a, a very big city. And so I love that just being from California. Um, super, super, a, a lot of variety of food. So that's amazing. And yeah, I think the Bundesliga, the German league is it reminds me a lot of the Big Ten and just like every Every team has something to offer, and really any given night, anyone could win. So that's really cool to see. Um, we had a match last night against the number two team in our league, and we ended up losing, but it was a hard-fought battle. And so I'm super, super proud of our team, and just, you know, we're still developing. We have kind of a mix of young and older players. I want to say our, our oldest player is only 27, so I guess we could – we are a fairly young team, so that's definitely something that, you know, we kind of have to, I guess, progress throughout the season and just learn from each other. And it's been such a challenge for me just because I'm obviously used to the USA national team and like so many veterans are on that team and I'm constantly learning from them. But now on my team, I think I'm kind of developed into this leadership role and I'm fully accepting that and it's been a challenge and I'm accepting that challenge and I, I think in the long run it's going to help me become a better player that's that's great yeah good to hear and I'm curious with Team USA and as you mentioned like Karch's systems and everything they focus on when you are a Team USA athlete but you're playing overseas are they pretty hands-off and you're really focused on your club team and what your coach wants to do for their systems or is there any contact with the national team when you're playing for your club yeah, there is um, there is some contact with with my assistant coach Tama, and then also Karch. We have volley metrics that we upload our matches onto, and um, it's just a way for them to kind of see how how we are doing, and if we have questions on you know certain situations, or maybe we want feedback that we're maybe not getting with our club teams. Um, it's a good way to ask questions. Um, I'm 
very much in contact with Tama, our assistant coach, since she is my position coach. And so I love to get her feedback and see, you know, how I can still get better, even though we may be far away from each other. Uh, But also, you know, they totally respect what our coaches have to say in our club teams and, you know, making sure that we are following their systems if they have a certain way of doing things. But luckily my, my club coach is super open to, you know, what I have to say, or maybe strategically, maybe I have something that, that can be better or maybe just another suggestion to him. And he's super open to it. And um, he's very open to feedback. So that's pretty awesome. Nice. Nice. And I feel like, it would be a shame not to get into some of your routines because you've talked about all the reps you did and changing positions and everything that went into it with your work ethic. But I'm wondering if you can give us an example. Like when you say getting reps, I think this is something maybe club or high school coaches abuse a little bit where if you're getting standing float serves from a middle-aged coach like me, you're probably not getting better, right? So how much failure are you looking for in these drills? Because it's not just ball touches, right? You probably want it to be specific in situations. So when you feel like you were making gains and really getting comfortable in the position, how much were you failing or was it just about passing 200 balls that day? Like what are some little examples that some of our young listeners or coaches could say, okay, that's how we can help our liberos get better versus uh, you're going to pass two buckets of ball off a standing float serve and you might get better. You might not. You're just going to get touches. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think definitely at the younger age, it's important to just get as many reps as you can just to get that touch and that feel of the, of the ball and the repetition. But I think as you get older and maybe you're, you know, trying to get this starting position and you're really trying to up your game and develop as a player, I think it's important to maybe set a goal in mind when you're doing a certain drill. For example, oh, I hate this drill, but I also love it because it <laughs> definitely gets uh, gets me in a, in a focused mindset and definitely helps my game. But Karch, when I was uh, training at home with Karch, we had this drill that – I had to get seven perfect balls in a row to a target. And if I, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, I shank the next ball, I start at zero. And it's just one way of just constantly staying engaged. And try. I think passing is a very mental part of the game. And I think if you can be mentally tough in those times, it's going to help you definitely in the, in the matches and in, in, in your career in the long run. And so uh, we did that drill probably every day when I was home and it's helped me for sure. And I think it's just, it's just one of those drills that you have to like just mentally stay in it. And are there any technical things that really help? Cause obviously switching from a setter to a libero, you were way behind on passing reps, right? So do you like mm-hmm. to think about putting your platform together early, late? Are you big on like footwork and you always want your hips to face the target? Like what were some little things that clicked for you that you could speed up and become a D1 libero when you decided in like the 12th grade to make the switch? Yeah, yeah. So back in the club days at Mizuno Long Beach, we were taught so much footwork. It was, it was like almost obnoxious how much footwork we did in practice, but Obviously, I'm super thankful, and um, I think to this day it's helped me just to really, really 
hone in on that footwork and remember to try to get, you know, behind the ball. And then as I got older and into the Nebraska and the national team, what Karch really emphasizes is, is angles. And really, we never take anything in our midline. Um, so that's definitely been something that I've had to learn and really, really try to, you know, get better at. And so I have you know that I have been working on and sometimes I feel myself doing before a service coming to me is just having my arms out in front of me um, so that I can really go and track that ball with my angle and my platform and try to put out an angle as early as I can Um, and I think that's it's just a simple reminder and just something that can kind of like physically I can feel it and just see it outside um, in front of my body so that, okay, I can have a straight platform to go and get that ball. It's interesting to hear you say you're trying to avoid the midline because as a beach coach here in Canada, we've talked to our players that at a high level, probably 60% of the serves are going to be outside your midline. So you need to become comfortable with the outside your body passing. But it's interesting to hear Karch say like, this is something we're going to focus on. So was that something that was just the opposite of you've been taught? Or were you comfortable right away to kind of take balls outside your hips and be comfortable that you were still in control, even though it's it's like you're reaching your arms outside your body every time? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was pretty opposite for me. I grew up like everything's got to be on your midline. You have to shuffle to every ball, get it in your midline and try to get around the ball. So that's what I was, you know, grown to be used to. And so when I got, I mean, thankfully at Nebraska, we worked on both. It was like kind of however you can get to the ball. If it's sometimes out of your midline, that's okay. Um, but when it was, when it was time to, you know, be on the national team and be with Karch, it was like simply like flat out. Everything is outside your midline, all angles. And sometimes I just, I really struggled with it just because I was not used to it at all. And I'm still learning and still, you know, getting the, the feel for it. But there are some balls that I, I see like Karch always, you know, send some video of maybe it's Kayla Banworth and she's taking some balls like completely behind her head, like um, such great angles, but it's just crazy. Like what your platform can do if it's early enough. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing this. And I'm curious with the USA system, what are some routines you have in serve receive? Like you're, you've probably scouted some tendencies and you know if somebody's going to be like a float server or a spin server, but is it your responsibility to be calling seams and kind of adjusting things as needed? Or or what are some leadership things that liberos can do? Because you're not going to get a big kill. You're not going to get a block. But how do you still stay involved, making sure that you're you're invested in the game and it can still take that leadership role? Yeah, yeah. Right now with my club team, I am definitely the voice in the passing formation and the back row. So um, they look to me for, you know, if we need to shift someone, we're shifting them and calling out seams. And um, on the national team, it, it definitely comes naturally for everyone to call out the seams and making sure, you know, who has which ball. And, and so that is kind of like second nature for us. But yeah, on the club team, it's I'm taking more of the initiative to do that and making sure that we are very comfortable in those teams and um, making sure that, you know, we know who which ball is whose. And so I think that's something that I really take pride in because, like I said earlier, it's how, there 
there are liberos that aren't going to get served. So it's how can you contribute? How can you still, you know, be a part of the team and make them feel at ease and make them feel comfortable? And so I think that's one thing that I'm definitely challenging myself to do this season is just really communicate and use my voice to the best that I can. And if you had to think about it, what's your eye sequence when you're on defense that either you use or you that you would encourage some of the younger athletes you coach to use about uh, okay, it's a closed block situation. There's a seam or it's a one-on-one. Like how's your eye sequence working that you can still play defense around the block versus sometimes when you get on YouTube and watch, you just see the back row players yelling at the middle if there's a seam. Like how do you find a solution and still get a dig in those situations? So once the ball is served by your team, if you had to think about it, like where do your eyes and where where do you look for information when that plays on the go? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, everyone at some point in their career has heard the the phrase ball setter, ball hitter. There's a lot of depth that goes into it. And, you know, we're serving the ball. Okay, we first have to evaluate is the pass good or not. Okay, maybe if it's good, perfect. We have to consider the the first attack probably being the middle just because it's first tempo and it's coming very quick. So as a five, position five left back defender, I'm – pretty much staying at my base uh, position in case the setter is setting the middle attacker and just staying put in base and um, staying home there. If they're setting uh, a pin hitter, then I'm, if it's the outside attacker, then I'm simply just uh, turning and facing to that attacker. For the national team, we try to keep it as quiet and as simple as we can, just because with, you know, the speed of the game, it's a lot faster and we don't have time for all these unnecessary movements. So we're really just turning and facing to the hitter. Um, If it's a back set, I'm taking two or three shuffles back and typically I'm coming off the line a little bit more and trying to read and react to whatever the attacker maybe is tipping, roll shotting. If it's coming off the block, I'm able to, you know, be stopped and react to that ball. But yeah, I mean, it's a lot of just really I think I work is something that may be underutilized um in in the sport um maybe more in the college sense uh because that wasn't at least when I was there it wasn't talked about it as much as national team and so I think like for example here in my club team like that's something that we need to work on is just I work and getting our eyes to the to the setter and then immediately to the hitter because I think they, the hitter can give you a lot of information and, and where they're going to attack and maybe where that set is ending up. Now, I think some coaches are, are wishful and think, oh, if you look at the hitter and some of them are like, oh, you need to look at their hand or their elbow. But as you said, I think the game's too fast. Are you honestly just trying to get a whole picture of them? And if they're approaching slow, maybe the odds say that's going to be a roll shot or a tip. And if they're approaching fast, that's going to be their hardest angle to hit. Or or can you really break it down with your eye work to start looking for like little traits that they might have? Yeah, I mean, of course, yeah, depending on on the speed of the set and I definitely am looking at um, more of the location of the set, too. A lot of times if the ball is five, six feet off the net, I'm actually taking a step back into the court because, I, to me, it's giving me information that it's not going to be as you know hard or as powerful as a hit as maybe if it's closer to 
three, four feet off of the net. Um, and so that the set location gives me a, a lot of information. And then also, yeah, their approach and how fast they're coming in. Maybe they're slowing down. Maybe, you know, a lot of coaches say, you know, watch their elbow and see if it drops. And so I think all these kind of physical cues can give you information, but also I think the set can too. This is awesome. And I feel like we could talk for another hour, but I feel like uh, you're busy and you were very kind to make the time zone difference work. So I'm just looking at the clock here. But uh, one thing before we let you go, we're trying to make a tradition on the show is just volleyball players find themselves in unique or odd situations. So I was hoping you could just give us one more story before you go about something you, you may have not experienced without volleyball being in your life. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking about this when you had sent over um, kind of the agenda of today's show, and the one thing that kind of made me instantly laugh is uh, something to do with the national team, and every time we go to China when we're traveling there for a tournament, we actually cannot eat the meat there because for some reason... um, they have hormones in injected in the meat that would, if we were to take a drug test, it would cause us to fail that drug test. Wow. And so we, our nutritionist says, okay, no meat whenever we go to China, just to be, you know, on the safe side of things. And so we have to pack all of these camping meals. And so we just like, we have this one uh, suitcase that is just filled with camping meals for everyone on the team, uh, staff included. And so we um, have this, you know, 50 pound suitcase filled with camping meals. And we, it's so funny because they have like so many different variety of foods. For instance, they have chicken and dumplings, they have lasagna, they have mac and cheese, they have beef stew, like the list goes on and on. And so it's so funny when it comes to the, you know, mealtime, we are like, like arguing of what meals to choose from because there are some favorites on the list. And so it's just so funny when we go there because we have to pack this big food bag um and someone is in charge of we all get assigned a bag to carry when we travel and someone is in charge of that and it's just so ridiculously heavy and it's just so funny because it's packed full of uh camping meals so that's yeah that's super funny when we and we all and it's funny because we all typically we eat in the same cafeteria or or a meal room as the other countries and they just laugh at us because they're like what are they eating? Like they're literally heating up water and putting water into this plastic bag full of uh, dried food. (laughs) (laughs) That's just so funny as a young listener, probably like, Oh, I have dreams of playing for USA. They're they're one of the best teams in the world. Like Justine's won gold medals at at nations league. And then, yeah, you hear about you guys hanging out in a hotel room, eating camping meals is like a team at the highest level, which is just hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, this has been awesome. Thanks for connecting. And again, a, a, a thank, big thanks to uh, Justin who had a great episode with us and then thought that you would make a great guest. And I think I, I've definitely learned a lot. It's been great to hear about everything you've accomplished and everything that goes into your routines and, and how competitive you are. And best of luck with, with your pro season and with USA Volleyball and everything else you've got on the go. And, and thanks again for joining us. Yes, thank you so much, Josh. It was a pleasure, and I am so happy that um, you could have me. Yeah, I think we may have converted some Canadian fans to USA Volleyball fans, so don't be, be on the lookout <laughs> for some fans when we get back to normal here. Yes, yes.